back. That's a good sign. And then we walked out. That's really good. This morning, I'm going to talk about a passage. It's going to be um, in, in the book of Luke. And we're going to look there in a little bit. It's going to be Luke chapter 9, but we'll get there in a little while. Uh, 95 years ago, there was a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Evan Kane, and he was chief surgeon at a place called Kane Summit Hospital in New York City. Dr. Kane, he had uh, practiced his specialty for 37 years. In fact, he had a record of successfully performing around 4,000 appendectomies. It was on record, so it was a long time ago, but they kept good records at the time. And he believed at that time that people would recover quicker if they only had a local anesthesia and were not completely put under during the surgery. For us today, we'd go, well, yeah. At the time, that was revolutionary because whenever you had a surgery, you were completely put out anesthetically. Yet no matter how convinced Dr. Kane was about his theory, he had a problem. Nobody wanted to go under the knife while they were still awake. They all had the same fear. I don't want to feel the pain of the knife and be awake. So as, as much as he felt that his theory was correct, he couldn't find a willing subject. But by and by, by looking, he did find a willing subject. And he had the patient prepped, brought him into the operating room. The local anesthesia was carefully applied. The right side of the abdomen was opened up. They went in, excised the appendectomy or the appendix, they, they cauterized, they took care of the blood vessels, they sewed him back up, and lo and behold, he was correct. The patient experienced very little pain, very little discomfort, and the next morning, the patient was up and walking about, and for in 1921, that was remarkable, because when you had an appendectomy in 1921, you were in the hospital from six to eight days. So, he was right. And it was a milestone in the world of medicine. However, what made it particularly noteworthy was that the patient and the doctor were the same. Dr. Kane operated on himself. <laughs> he couldn't find anybody that would be a willing subject. So, what I'm asking you today is to perform a little bit of spiritual exploratory surgery. I'm not asking you to reveal to anybody what the results of that are. I'm just saying, I want you to root around a little bit in your soul. I want you to take a hard and an honest look at your spiritual health, and I want you to see if your faith walk is as healthy as it could be. This morning, the title of my passage is Fan or Follower. And for those of you that are readers, you'll probably recognize that this is uh, closely tied to a book by Kyle Eidelman, Not a Fan. And I certainly consulted that book when I made this, but much of it was my own as well. But he needs to get credit where credit is due. So what I'm going to talk about this morning is I'm going to have some blocks. What does it mean to be a Christian today? What does it mean to be a fan? What does it mean to be a follower and what does the Bible have to say about it? That's kind of the, our general roadmap that we're going to be going on. So <clears throat> there's also going to be an overhead, but we're not there yet. <clears throat> we'll get there. What does it mean to be a Christian today? Primarily in America, 
and I'm going to talk specifically about America. It's a cultural and a traditional title inherited from a previous generation. I'll take myself as an example. By today's standards, I'm a Christian because my grandparents were Christians, my parents were Christians, my brothers are Christians, my, my in-laws are Christians, everybody around me is Christian, so therefore, I'm a Christian. It's a traditional title or a cultural title inherited from a previous generation. That is one explanation for today. What does it mean to be a Christian? That largely boils down to two things, this cultural, inherit inheriting it culturally. It means you got to go to church every so often and you got to avoid certain behaviors. That's it. You're good to go. <laughs> That's generally what it means. Secondly, what does it mean to be a Christian today? Well, it's a political quest to defend moral values. Is something like, we are going to support Habitat for Humanity. We are going to go on soup kitchens. We are going to do something to help the poor. And it's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But some would tie being a Christian as linking it with a political quest to, de to defend moral values. And finally, what does it mean to be a Christian today? Well, it's a past religious experience. It's a general belief in Jesus, or it's a desire to be a good person. I have had people in the counseling room that I have asked specifically, are you a Christian? And they go, yeah. And I says, why would you say that? And they come, and as crazy as this sounds, folks, they, 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 they made it a real roundabout way. It's called a circuitous route. They made it a lot round the way, but what they meant was, well, I've had a Bible on the end table for years. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I have a general belief in God. Uh, I had a, a gal that I was, I was preaching at at a church elsewhere. She was like, it was, happened to be her birthday. I'll never forget it. It was her birthday. She, I believe she was 83 or 84 years old. And when you're a guest speaker, you talk about mainline stuff. You don't talk about little fringy things where you can get a lot of dispute and dissensions. It's mainline stuff. Jesus Christ is Lord, etc. And she came up to me and she goes, I really enjoyed your sermon. I go, well, thank you. She goes, I didn't agree with anything you said, but I, I really enjoyed your sermon. And I'm going, what? You didn't agree with anything I said. This is mainline stuff, like Jesus Christ is our Savior. And I go, well, why are you here? She goes, this church needs a new roof, and I'm here to see that it gets one. She is a Christian because she's doing good things. Because she has a general belief in God, and she is now linking that with being a Christian. It happens all the time. During the days of Jesus, followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They were called believers or saints or brothers, followers of the way, something like this. But it was not till 10 or 15 years after Jesus had, had ascended into heaven that The followers of Jesus were first called Christians, and it was initially a term of derision, of mocking, of humiliation, but the followers of Jesus quickly embraced that term as a badge of honor. 
That's what they did. And from the very get-go, the word Christian was a person who had a wholehearted devotion, who wholeheartedly followed Jesus Christ. The word demanded affection, allegiance, and submission to God and his word. That is the origins of the word Christian. Allegiance, devotion, follower of who God is. Okay, There was nothing casual about it at all. So, with that as the foundation of what it really means to be a Christian, this is where I want you to kind of have a little bit of an introspection. I am not up here, no joke, I'm not up here to have, they say, a fire and brimstone sermon. No, I'm not. I'm up here to say, this is what a fan is, this is what a follower is, this is what the Bible has to say about it, and you folks do a little bit of spiritual exploratory surgery on yourself. Just listen to what it has to say. I am not here to compliment you. I am not here to condemn you. I am here to say, this is what scripture says. So, what is a fan? Well, the most basic definition of a fan is an enthusiastic admirer. That's what they are. This is a fan. <laughs> That's a fan. It's the guy without the shirt. They have the painted chest. They've got the jersey, and we're going to use the illustration of a football team. They've got jerseys of, of, of players in their, in their room or in their bedroom or in their house. They know all the stats. They know everything there is about the players. Okay? A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. Okay? That's what they are. But here's the deal. They may have multiple bumper stickers. They may know how much the players are getting paid. They may know the position that they play and where the player came from and how old they are. And they know all the stats about them. But here's the deal with a fan. Nothing is required of them. Not one time does a fan go on the field and take a hit. Never. They don't drop one drop of sweat on the field. They sit in the stands, and they, they cheer if they want to, or they just sit there quietly if they want to. Nothing is required of them, ever. They don't have to make a sacrifice. And in fact, if the team gets on a losing streak, they're just as likely to maybe just switch ships, and I don't want to root for this team anymore. I'll root for this team. So here's the dilemma with a fan, is fans often confuse their admiration for devotion. They're not the same. Fans mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. A fan never has any sacrifice or pain on the field, ever. Another one, fans assume their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith. And one more, fans almost always consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. Almost always. So, that tells you the origins of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian today? What is a fan? Now, what is a follower? And if you are like many people that are in churches today, 
that question is not particularly, uh, it does not make you uncomfortable. It is not particularly convicting. For many people in churches, the question, what is it to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is repetitious and redundant. They kind of go, well, yeah, we know what that is. Of course we know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Why would you even ask that? that that's so self-evident, it's not even worthy of discussion. Well, let me clarify what I'm not asking. No joke, what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, are your parents or your grandparents Christians? I'm not asking you, did you raise your hand at the end of a sermon one time? Or did you repeat a prayer after a preacher? I'm not asking you, did you walk forward when they played just as I am? I'm not asking if you ever appeared in a church directory or did you grow up in VBS or did you go to church camp? Not asking any of those. I'm not asking you if you ever kissed dating goodbye, and I'm sure not asking you if you've ever finished a 40 days of a purpose-driven life in less than 40 days. I don't care. Okay? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And many people in church settings and elsewhere are quick to say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But they know not what they're saying. So I want to look at the passage here in Luke, and I want to go over what it has to say about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be reading in Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to take the first verse, it's going to be in chapter 23. The first verse, it asks, it asks the following. It says, oh, by the way, I'll just so you can, I know some of you are a little bit um, particular, you like to have your sheet filled out, so there you go. Uh, what is the follower of Jesus? Total surrender, fully committed to Jesus. Okay? You got that? Now I'm going to take it off. Here we go. It's off. Oh, we don't want to go there. We want to go back here. All right. Here it says on the, on the uh, Luke chapter 9, this is laying the groundwork for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's the groundwork. Now I'm going to skip ahead to three fellas that Jesus talks to. Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That is an excellent start. Would you not say, I'll follow you wherever you go? And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And i got to tell you, folks, I was raised in the church, and I didn't understand what, what that response was from Jesus for years and years and years. I go, what in the world does he mean? Foxes have holes and birds of the air. What are you talking about? Just, just give me an answer that I can grab onto. Well, here's your answer. This man loves comfort. He loves comfort. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus goes, you want to follow me? It's not going to be comfortable, and I don't think you're going to like it. All of us, me included, I've worked my whole life for comfort. I have. I got a house, clothes. I didn't walk to church, and neither did you, probably. You have a car. You go where you want to do. You want to buy groceries. You go down and get them. We all love comfort. So there's no, no problem with comfort in and of itself. It's when that comfort, that desire for comfort, interferes or derails you from being a follower of Jesus Christ. There was once 
on a major network, a young lady of 28, and she says the following, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like bacon. <laughs> he goes, I re this represents a growing number of people who refer to themselves as, no joke, flexitarians. <laughs> Most of the time, they will refuse to eat meat, but once in a while, they make an exception. And this gal says it this way, I really like vegetables, but I'm not 100% committed. Flexitarians is a good way to describe how many people today view their commitments. They're committed until it becomes inconvenient or uncomfortable. The man in scripture, I'll follow you wherever you go. He loves comfort, but if it gets a little uncomfortable, I'm dialing it back. We're not doing that. We're, we're not going to do that. Okay? Some will say, I want to follow Jesus, but don't ask me to forgive that person who offended me. Don't do that. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to release the bitterness and resentment that I have against a spouse parent, an in-law, a co-worker, not going to do that because I don't feel comfortable doing that, so I'm going to back away. Don't want to be a follower of Jesus in that regards. Don't ask me to give a percent of my money to the church because, you see, that money's mine and i got to pay the bills. And I'll follow Jesus, but, Pastor, if you get close to something that makes me uncomfortable, I'm backing off. Not going to go there. Not going to do that. Don't talk to me about my inappropriate affections outside of my marriage. Don't talk to me about that. I want to be comfortable, and I like my life just the way it is, so leave me alone. We want to pick and choose within the teachings of Jesus. It would be just as absurd as if I were marrying somebody up here and they wanted to glean through the wedding vows and say, don't really want to do that one. I'll do these. I don't want to do that one. And the spouse would look and go, what are you talking about? So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? There's got to be a commitment level there that is more than some of us are willing to give. The second one. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. As a kid, I went, really? I mean, really, Jesus, are you like zealous? You can't even go home and bury your father? Well, let me give you a little backdrop on this. It is very likely that the, this man's father was not even sick. Because what was happening is he says, Jesus, I don't want to follow you right now. And the, you can put a title on that. It's now is not a good time. First one is he loves comfort. Second one is now is just not a good time. Okay? And it's not a good time because if he starts to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, then his parents may find out and disapprove and he would be cut out of the will. He goes, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. Let me first go back and bury my parents. Then I'll follow you, and then there's no danger of me losing my inheritance. How about we just do it that way? And Jesus says, no, 
No, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Well, the strong inference here is the guy didn't. And so what do we say? We put off Jesus like we're going to the gym or like we're going to go on a diet. I'm going to go on a diet right after I have lunch. That's what we like to think. Okay, Now is not a good time. I'll do it a little later. Just a little later. And, and, and for you young people, yeah, you know, middle school and high school is so busy and you've got so much on your plate, and you do. I'm going to wait to do this Jesus thing when I get out of school because then I'll have a lot more time. Now is not a good time. And then you get out of school and you get a job or you're in college and we know how things rev up and you, you get busy and maybe you get a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you have exams or you have a new job and you go, Jesus, now is just not a good time. And then you get into your 30s and your early 40s, you start to have kids and things rev up even faster and you're going, you're a taxi driver driving your kids around and Jesus, you know, I really mean well, but now is not a good time. And we can extrapolate that all the way out to my age and your age and, and we have grandkids and we want to be involved in their lives and, and, and hey, we want to go on vacations. And, you know, I've worked my whole life to, to go on a cruise or to go on this tour or that tour and Jesus, I'm... I really, we're going to do this one day, but now it's not a good time. Just not a good time. I would tell you a true story. Uh, some years ago, I had, <clears throat> I, I went to a place, okay, and I, I met with this young man, a junior, senior in high school, and this particular individual had some serious concerns about life and living, and their life was kind of going sideways a bit. And we probably talked for an hour to an hour and a half. And I want to tell you, people of God, this young man was good. He was what I call a church kid. Really knew the answers. Really knew the right things to deflect questions. Like, are you willing to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, well, you know, when I accept Jesus Christ, I want to make sure it's for real. I don't want to do it because somebody else wants me to. Doesn't that sound good? got to admit, that sounds good. And I looked at him and I said, man, that sounds good. You've rehearsed that a lot. But let's just boil that down. What you are saying is, no, Jesus, I am not going to accept you as my Lord and Savior. And he didn't like that. He didn't like that at all. He wanted to soft pedal it. Let's make that sound a lot better. We don't want to just say, no, I'm rejecting you. But when we left that table, I said, let's be clear. Jesus Christ has knocked on the heart, the door of your heart, and you have said no. Three months later, he was dead. I'm telling you, folks, this is real life. I dealt with real life for a long, long time, being a police officer. You can soft pedal it any way you like to. Young people, when Jesus Christ knocks on the door of your heart, and you say, oh, I want to I wanna do this. Or I want to do this. Guess what? You are saying no. Now is not a good time. People of God, if you're my age or older, you say, you know, I have every intention. I want to follow Jesus Christ. But, you know, it's just not a good time. You know, and I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to be uncomfortable, and I'm not good at doing this. I'm not good at doing that. You are saying no. I don't want to follow you. The third guy <clears throat> says, 
Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can put a title under that as half-hearted. Half-hearted. Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. I call this the otter mentality. It's the type of individual that you would love to have at your party. They are so fun. They're easy to talk to. They're, they laugh easily. They, they talk well with others. And, and when they're there, we say, you know, when John or Jane is there, that party's just a hoot. It's just so fun. But here's the deal with that person is they'll say yes to go with you. But if something funner comes along, they're gone. They're gone. They're going to do something else because it's funner. Okay? And Jesus says to this person, I want you to follow me. And he goes, yeah, I will. I will. But when he's plowing the field, he's looking back. Is there something funner? There's got to be something funner to do. If there's anything funner to do, I'll keep doing this, Jesus. But if I find something funner, I'm half-hearted. I'm out of here. I'm going to go do that. I want you to imagine with me, and this is pretend, and you will soon see why I'm bringing this up, the applicability to the sermon. It's obviously make-believe. But I want you to imagine with me, since all of you know me, and I don't know hardly any of you, that you see me in a couple days, and I'm at Anthony's or some nice place, and I'm having a candlelight dinner with somebody who is not my wife. And let's just say for fun, you have the urge and the courage to come up, and you go, Ken, uh, who's the gal? I go, oh, I'm on a date with Jane tonight. You go, yeah, but you're, you're married to Sal. I go, yeah, I know. I date her on Thursdays, but this is Tuesday. <laughs> so I'm, I'm dating Jane today because it's Tuesday. Thursdays is Sal's night. So it's okay. It's all good. And you, have, you, are, you are repulsed enough that you would call my wife. And my wife goes, yeah, yeah, we know that. He can date other people during the week. Thursdays is my night. And we're all good. And then you can really pretend that I come home and my wife reads me at the door and says, how was your date? <laughs> like, is this nuts? I mean, but yet we will do this and claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, your night's Thursday. This is Tuesday. Don't worry about it. This is Tuesday. I'll get to you on Thursday. Today is what I want to do, and I'm going to go do this over here. And I know it excludes you, but hey, I like you too. I do. I like you too. So it's okay. Thursday's coming, and you and I will we'll get along real well. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, this is nuts. So God has a jealous anger, just like our spouses do. God does not want to be number one. God does not want to be number one. He wants to be the one and only. I want to now have you look with me at a guy in Scripture who is very well-known, Nicodemus. And I'm going, to, I'm going to go through those three passages relatively quickly. And I want you to just kind of follow along with me. What you have here is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very, very important individual in the Jewish life. 
Nicodemus 3, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a good teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus has seen Jesus. He goes, you know, I like that guy. I like his miracles. I like his teaching. I like his demeanor. I like a lot of the things that Jesus has to offer. But I don't feel comfortable coming in the daytime. So I'll come at night, see? Because I don't want people whispering and saying, what's that Nicodemus doing? Is he talking to Jesus? Well, isn't he a part of the the, the Sanhedrin, a 72-member council that is incredibly important? He could have walked into the daytime and went to Jesus, and it would have been like a parting of the Red Sea. They would have let him in because... He was so well-known and he was so important, but the Nicodemus said, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that because people would whisper. People would say things. And he's going, I'll just go to Jesus at night and we can have a nice little chat. Well, now we move on to the next passage, which is going to be John chapter 7. It's going to be in verse, well, starting at verse 45. The... Pharisees and the chief priests were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. They were trying to find a way to accuse him. So they sent the temple guards out and said to the temple guards, bring Jesus back here because we want to ask him some questions. And verse 46 says, well, 45 says, why didn't you bring him, bring him in? The temple guard says, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he was doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee couple points. They were wrong because two prophets came from Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. But their point was they wanted to mock him and ridicule him and humiliate him because it was right here, folks, where Nicodemus went from being a fan to a follower. Right here, when he said that to them, he has skin in the game. He's now taken a hit. He's come down from the stands, and right here, he's now one of the players. And he's going to pay for it. It goes on. Chapter 19, starting at verse 38. It reads, John 19, verse 38. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of stuff to have Jesus buried, and that visit costs far more than the cost of those items. That visit by Nicodemus right here was expensive because now he is a visible follower of Jesus Christ. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. 
I'm going to go to a, I'm going to shift gears here slightly. Oh, I said, I said in the notes that there were people that wanted Jesus for something. The crowds wanted Jesus for something. The rich man wanted Jesus for something. But we're going to move ahead. Uh, DTR, define the relationship. We're shifting gears here just slightly. I'm, I'm leaving the passage that I've just talked about. And I want to talk about define the relationship. And for those of us that have been married, we know exactly what that means. There was a time in the relationship with my wife and myself, as well as with you, when at first we were casual, we were uncommitted, it was fun, we just kind of hung out together, but there was a moment in time where is this relationship going to progress to be committed, devoted, loyalty, allegiance, or are we going to split up and go our separate ways? There always comes the DTR in a relationship. At some time or other, define the relationship. What are we going to do? And that is what I'm asking you this morning. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ? What would that look like? So imagine with me is if you were to have your favorite cup of coffee, juice, tea, whatever that looks like, and you get up tomorrow morning, and I don't care if it's at your kitchen table, I don't care if you go down to Starbucks or Woods or wherever it is that you go, but you're sitting in the back room or you're sitting around your table, and if you could imagine with me, Jesus walks in and sits right across from you. But before you really have time to be awkward or feel uncomfortable, he basically says, what do you think of me? What is our relationship going to look like? What's that going to look like? Are, are you going to be committed or are you going to be casual? Are you going to be a devoted follower or is it just kind of go, just what, whatever wind comes along, you, you maybe be, or are you going to be dependable? What, what does that look like? It's, I'm not telling you you're right. I'm not telling you you're wrong. We're doing some exploratory surgery. Is what would you say? And if you are mentally bypassing this little exercise, that in and of itself tells me a lot. It just tells me a lot. There was once a group of individuals called the Knights of Templar. They were around 1,000 to 1,300 BC. And they were of the Middle Ages. And these guys had a very strange baptismal routine is when they were baptized, they were immersed, but whenever they were immersed, they were immersed with their sword. The Knights of Templar, they would submerse them underground, but the Knights would always have their, their sword out of the water. The sword didn't go under. And it was saying, Jesus, you've got me, but you don't have my sword. And what I do with my sword on the battlefield or elsewhere it's not part of the deal. And that is what, allegorically speaking, is what you and I do. Is, Jesus, I'll be baptized, but not my stock portfolio. Not the remote control for the TV. That is not part of the deal. Not what I view on the internet. That's not part of the deal. I'm holding that out of the water. That's my deal, okay? How, when I go to church, my activity in church, 
what, how I treat my neighbor, how I treat my spouse, how, the, how I do that, how I do life, and you know yourself better than I do. That's out of the water. We don't do that. That's not going under. You got me, but you don't have this part of my life. That's being held up. No, we're not going to do that. And I think all of us have a tendency to do that. Is we are willing to, to make Jesus our friend, but not our Savior, our Redeemer, our, our Messiah. Here's the deal. Jesus made no compromises when he came and gave his life for you and I, and he will take no compromises now as he asks you to do the same. Jesus is adamant that we give everything to him because whatever I want to withhold has the greatest chance of being a substitute for him. When I say define the relationship, doesn't that tell you? It just it, it paints a picture of what is that relationship. This paints a picture. What is that relationship? Is it one of loyalty and commitment or not? It tells all of us something. We're, gonna, we're gonna getting towards the end on judgment. Does it reflect what you say and believe? There's a line. If a person is wrong about being right with God, then ultimately it really doesn't matter what he or she is right about. Is it possible, people of God, that some of us are wrong about being right with God? When you came in here today, to hear, before you heard this sermon, you went, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We define what a fan is. <clears throat> we define what is a follower. This wholehearted commitment, you go, really, I'm not there. That's not me. Uh, it appears that I'm more of a fan than a follower. In Matthew 7, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, it would not surprise me if that verse would have said, several will say to me in that day, or even numerous will say to me in that day. But the passage doesn't say that. It says, many will say to me on that day, I did A, B, and C. And the Lord says, depart from me, you wicked. I never knew you. That should make us fearful. I get the whole theology about assurance. I get that. But there is nothing wrong with doing a check. 1 Corinthians, rather 2 Corinthians, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? We are called upon to examine ourselves. So the invitation has not changed. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the invitation is for anyone. There may be some of you here today that in the quietness of your home, when you're laying on the Davenport, you're laying on the bed, and you say, Pastor, if you only knew what my past looked like, you wouldn't ask me to surrender to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ doesn't want a person like me. 
If you knew what my past looked like, you'd know Jesus doesn't want me. And I'd say, yeah, he does. I happened to read just this morning just a little, a little snippet about um, that Mark, uh, Michael Phelps. At here some years ago, he wanted to commit suicide because his life had no meaning. I'm going, really? You've got, you know, around 20 then, around 20 gold medals, and you have no, you know, purpose. You have no, nothing worthwhile. And he, he read The Purpose Driven Life, which gave him, I'm hoping, a godly purpose to drive him on. So I would say to you, what is your purpose? And I'm going to end, I'm going to end with a, I didn't even plan on doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. There was, there was once a man, <coughs> his name was Akiba. His name was Akiba. He was a well-known rabbi with the Jews, and he was walking. He was walking along the road. He was heading for a particular destination. Okay, and as were often common with rabbis, his head was kind of down, and he was being contemplative, and he's thinking about a lot of things. And rabbis were very prone to recite scripture while they were walking. So he's walking along, and absentmindedly he comes into a Y in the road, and he was supposed to go this way, but he didn't. He went the other way. And he walks and he walks and it starts to get about nighttime. It's just starting to get dim-ish. And he hears this loud voice in front of him. Who are you and what do you want? And he looks up and he realizes he has walked towards a Roman legion fortress. And as he's approaching, the guards on the top see he's approaching and they call out, Who are you and what do you want? And He's taken, he's taken back. And he goes, who told you to ask me that question? Well, the guard is like, duh, what am I supposed to say? And Akiba says, I will give you five shekels a day if you will stand outside of my door at my home and ask me that question every time I come out. Who are you and what are you doing here? And the question is the same for you and I. Who are you and what are you doing here? Are you a fan that you're just kind of going along with the crowd? And this, my, my parents were, were Christians and I was a Christian and my brothers are Christians and everybody in my family is a Christian and life is good. And I show up every so often, punch my card, avoid certain behaviors, and I'm good. Or... Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You say, Pastor, what I'm doing here is I'm here to glorify Jesus Christ in all that I say and do. And I'm trying to make this church a place where people see that Christ is pleased to dwell. So what does your spiritual exploratory surgery look like? What does that look like? And you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anybody. What does that look like? I'd leave this with you. Jesus, Jesus Christ wants a personal relationship with you. That's what he wants. He will never walk away from you. Never. He is there at any time. You can make that relationship as tight and as loyal as you want. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives us that you want us to be true followers of you and not ones that seek comfort or who are half-hearted you don't want us to be those that sometimes are there and sometimes are not. You want us to give our life to you. We want to love you with our whole heart. So we thank you, Jesus, for your word. In Christ's name, amen.
I want to tell you a story about my son. They told me this the other day that I think is applicable to what I talked about today. My son is one of these guys, this will all tie it up, okay? My son is one of these guys that thrives on no. He, he drove you crazy as parents. But he thrived on no, and he's currently a writer in Hollywood. He's got about 12 people around the table. He is the only Christian. And it is incredibly evident he is the only Christian. Because they take pot shots at him anytime they can. And he had, he told me just last week, says, you know, Dad, he said, I had a, a guy that I'm a writer with, and all of a sudden his fellow writer came off with a barrage of profanity. Just a barrage of profanity. And then came right up to my son, right up to his face, and says, Oh, does that offend your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And looked at the, the person sitting next to my son and says, Oh, you're Jewish. You killed his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> He's stirring the pot. He's constantly they're stirring the pot. And my boy, who thrives on no, he says, God, Dad, he may be the only Jesus he ever sees. And I gotta be there, and I gotta be Christ to him, because if I'm not, who's gonna be? That is being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's being in the real world. That's where somebody gets in your grill and makes you feel really uncomfortable. You go, I don't like this, and I don't know if I can handle that. But he loves it there. He said, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I would say to you, where are you supposed to be? What does that look like to you? He knows he's supposed to be a light for the people that he's working with, knowing they are totally lost. Think about that. Has anybody gotten your grill and made you feel uncomfortable? Mm, they should. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, stand with me and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace. Have a great day. Thank you for coming.